I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile syrup podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is on Andrew Nichols Anon. Joining me on the show today is Mobile Syrup Managing Editor Patrick O'Rourke. How does it feel to be back on the show, Patrick? It's great. Thanks for having me back. Glad to have you back. Later on the show, we'll hear from Brenda McPhail, Director of the Privacy, Technology, and Surveillance Project at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, as well as Dr. Anne Kavukian, Head of the Privacy by Design Center of Excellence at Ryerson University. They'll lend some insight into the current state of privacy and surveillance in Canada, while Dr. Kavukian will specifically talk a little bit about her theories on privacy by design. But first, Patrick and I are going to speak a little bit about Anon, as well as the questions it asks and raises about privacy. Here are some credits. Anon was written and directed by Andrew Nichol. Amir Mokri was responsible for the film cinematography, while Christoph Beck composed the film score. Alex Rodriguez was responsible for editing the whole thing together. Now, we don't usually talk about which production companies are involved in the making of the properties we discuss, but Anon is a first for viewer experience. It's our first Netflix film, so shout out to Netflix for yet again distributing a smaller science fiction film that might otherwise have gone unnoticed by the public at large. Anon stars Clive Owen as Sal Freeland, a detective living in a dystopian, totalitarian version of New York City, where augmented reality implants mean that the government is able to record and observe everything that people see while simultaneously transmitting consumer information directly into citizens' feeds. In a world without privacy or anonymity, Sal comes across Amanda Seyfried's nameless woman and discovers that there's no information about her in any database. At the same time, a series of anonymous murders challenge the police's preconceived notions about the surveillance state. Could this unknown woman be responsible for the string of anonymous murders taking place around the world? Now, Patrick, since you know how viewer experience works, I'm not going to bother asking you if you've seen Anon. I already know you have. Let's get right into it. Were you on board with this movie's portrayal of this totalitarian surveillance state in which everyone's got bionic implants that allow them to learn pretty much everything about everyone almost instantly? I mean, I thought that was... Probably the coolest part of the movie was the world itself. I thought that that was fascinating. I thought the whole concept of the ether was interesting, but it was poorly executed, I guess, is how I would describe it. But in general, the dystopian world I thought was very fascinating. You brought up this thing, the ether. What is the ether in this movie? So the ether is their augmented reality world. It's this sort of always accessible version of the internet that connects everybody everybody around you as well as items and, and objects in the world as well. What I think is fascinating with ether is it's not particularly that interesting and i think that was one of the the, the things that i i um was sort of down on about the movie is the ether itself doesn't look engaging it's like various lines and boxes and squares and i know the movie had to visualize it in a way i just feel like uh, something like ready player one did a much cooler job of visualizing and creating a virtual world that seemed compelling and something people would want to spend time in whereas the ether i mean 
I wouldn't want to hang out in there. It's not cool. Where, where's the gifts? Where's the listicles? There's nothing cool there. You're absolutely right, and I'm I'm very much in agreement with you because like the ether in the movie as portrayed is this white. First of all, it's all white. Like there's no color in it. So like you'll you'll see an ad for Miller Lite, for example, the beer, and there were like a ton of Miller Lite ads in this movie. So you know clearly someone was sponsored by something. But like you'll see the the ad for Miller Lite, but instead of it being like whatever the colors of Miller Lite are, which I don't know what they are, it's just white. And you'll see an ad for like. Hermes, the the fashion brand, and it'll just be all white, and like you'll 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 see people's information when you pass them by, because of course the ether also feeds you information about people when you when you uh, when you see them in real life, but it'll be like a white photograph, and it's just white text, and it's just white everywhere. It really isn't a very compelling version of the internet. It reminded me of like Netscape Navigator, Windows 3.1. So that kind of pulled me out of it a bit. But I think it was an intentional aesthetic choice, right? Because you kind of see that throughout the whole movie. The color palette is very muted. The world itself is very empty. So I think that that minimalist perspective of what the ether is was also brought over from just the general context of the film itself. So like it makes sense, but I I did want to see more people live their lives in it, right? And to me, there really didn't seem to be that compelling of a reason to live your life inside the ether. The other thing that people apparently are able to do is shut off their ether feeds, which I thought was kind of interesting. Because like when I saw the trailer for this movie, I thought to myself that this is a world where you're always plugged into the ether. The ether is always feeding you information. You're always receiving, you know, transmissions from the government, and, and you're, you can see everyone's information always. But there are a number of scenes where characters. It's not that they close their eyes; it's that they'll be looking out a window, for example, and you know the ether will have covered their entire world with ads like banner ads everywhere but then all of a sudden they'll just turn that off so in my mind i was thinking well what's the point of this totalitarian surveillance state if you can sort of you know quote unquote jack out of it there's also that cool scene towards the end of the movie when uh soul was trying to hide from the fbi and he was looking at specific objects because he knew they were hacked into his feet and watching it so he was looking at specific objects but still walking forwards, trying to throw them off his trail. I thought that was really interesting. Their, their whole concept is that all this surveillance exists, keep people more safe. But just, just like with any type of security, there's always a way to circumvent it. And that was a very, I guess, brute force, simple way of circumventing the surveillance that existed in the film. So then let's talk a little bit then about the surveillance itself. So again, this is a world where everything that we see is recorded and transmitted to the government and the police have access to it and the FBI have access to it. But at the same time, the police, they choose what crimes that people can be charged with. Early on in the movie, we see Sal going through his day. He, you know, he's at his office and people are coming in being like, you know, detective, please help me. Uh, my jewelry has been stolen or, or something's been taken, yada, yada, yada. And then Sal gets to pick and choose what crimes he reports. So like early on, this young woman, a socialite, she says that in a hotel that she was staying in, someone stole her jewelry and she thinks that the maid stole her jewelry. You know, classic, classic case of that situation, (laughs) right? And then Sal looks at the information in the woman's feed and he looks at the information from the maid's point of view and he sees that yes she apps like the maid definitely stole it it's it's not even implied like it's just there we see it happen but sal gets to decide to not charge the maid so it's like there's you know infinite surveillance no privacy whatsoever but also the people in charge like it's it's totalitarian in the sense that clearly the, the people the citizens don't have very much power but at the same time, the government gets this, like, the laws are still, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, 
the police still choose which crimes they want to investigate and which crimes they don't. In that sense, it reminded me a lot of Minority Report, which I know is kind of, <laughs> there's a ton of plot holes in that movie, but I still really like it, where the police are kind of picking and choosing what they want to solve and what they see fit to solve, which, I mean, there's kind of that editorial perspective where some crimes they're, they're ignoring, whereas others they're pursuing. And that, I think what you're talking about is an example of that. And I thought that that was kind of interesting, but again, like this is supposed to be dystopian, right? So it's not, we know even going into it that this whole world, what they're doing doesn't ultimately result in something that's uh, for the common good, right? So I, I mean, it also made sense within the context of the movie, but I did, I did find that interesting as well. On the subject of the common good, the other thing that really stuck out to me in Anon is that, and maybe this is just a, a commentary on the way that we live our lives in, in the you know, to quasi-totalitarian surveillance state that we've built up for ourselves with social media and the government pretty much knowing who we are and what we're doing at all times. People in the movie, like just day-to-day citizens that Sal observes and surveils, they're just living their lives. Like there's a, there's a scene again early on in the movie where these two men are walking by and they're talking about, you know, the women that they may or may not have slept with the, the previous night. And they're speaking in another language and Sal is listening to them and he can't, probably can't understand the language they're speaking, but the ether is translating uh, the language for them. But also at the same time, like they're just having this, like they're just being misogynistic men out in public. No one cares. It's very interesting to me. Like it's, it's almost like the movie saying, you know, Again, because sci-fi can always be viewed as a commentary on real life, that we in you know the twenty first century twenty eighteen live in a surveillance state where where companies and and the government knows what we're doing at all times, and yet we're still freely divulging this information. Like we're just spouting stuff, you know, quote unquote, into the ether for anyone to hear, and we don't care. One of the things that I was curious about too is is that access to seeing everybody's. I guess, quote unquote, profile and and their lives. Is that only the police that have access or does everybody in that world have access? I don't know if the film ever touched on that. The scene that you're talking about, would everybody walking around also be able to see the data of other individuals as well? Or is it just the police that have access to it? And that's a very good question that the movie raises. Now, I would argue that, you know, Anon sort of tries to answer that question in that scene between the socialite and the maid, because the the socialite tells the police, you know, I know she did it. I know that the maid took it. But I think the idea is that the socialite didn't have access to the maid's feed. So she didn't know what happened after she So she didn't know what actually happened. But she, you know, just assumed based on her preconceived notions and her prejudices against the maid that, of course, that that happened. But you do raise, again, that's a very good question. Because, like, if I was, for example, in my day-to-day life, when I'm walking down the street, I overhear many, many conversations. That's just the way that the public space works. But yes, if I so chose, would I be able to translate conversations taking place in foreign languages? That's a very good question. The movie doesn't really answer it. Well, there's other data too. Like he was looking at people and seeing their job, their profession, like their marital status, like all kinds of stuff. Would that be uh, that that was my big thing was like is that open to everybody i'm assuming it's not and and i know the the movie kind of hinted at, at w- whether or not it is but i i think i would have liked to see that that question answered a little clearer early on cuz i know that that was running through my head the entire time i agree and again it's not like every single question that a science fiction property or that a movie raises needs to be answered but it would have been nice to see those questions get answered because ultimately and Patrick, you did touch on this earlier, Anon raises a number of very interesting ideas, but it doesn't really do very much with them. And we, we, you know, we talked about you know, the idea of the ether and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, the central 
hook. Like the the reason that this movie isn't just a textbook example of what surveillance could look like is that there's this first genuine whodunit in a very long time, which is that there are these anonymous murders taking place, which rattles the police and rattles the the surveillance state. Because, of course, you know, probably when the technology was being invented, someone was like, well, imagine if someone killed someone and you could see it from the perspective of the killer. And people were like, that's ingenious. I always want to see crimes committed because then I could know who it is. <laughs> right? Like, uh, and and the a non central issue is that there are these anonymous murders taking place, and also at the same time, uh, for Sal, there's Amanda Seyfried's character who is this anonymous woman, and she actually doesn't have a name, and that's by design. She's very analog, oh, as the film gosh. said many times. Yes, she's. So, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about some of the stuff you didn't like yeah, about the movie? Sure. I dialogue. Mean, I thought there was no. There's very little chemistry between between the two main characters. It was very robotic, and despite some lines being clever there's a lot of i would say probably overwritten dialogue that was exactly what you would expect in a incredibly cheesy sci-fi movie i wrote a couple a couple of them down like she describes the real world as the flesh space and she said that my whole body just like recoiled like it's so it it just it's too much to me like I, i think there's a better way to say that the movie's trying to say something intelligent i would argue pretty pretty smart social commentary about the world that we live in today and then this this kind of overwriting and overwrought script brought it down a, a couple notches for me i would agree uh, and on the subject of chemistry i just want to jump in really quickly sal is like this alcoholic ladies man who's yeah. oh and also sorry patrick i don't think we brought this up and we didn't sal isn't just a, a sad lonely detective living in a in a dark dystopian world of course he has a son that died when he it's was true, younger. It's true, he does, yeah. And, and, How and, original. And the, the death of his son clearly tore apart his marriage. But also at the same time, what does any of this say about the world in which they live? What does any of this say about the story? It's almost like Andrew Nichol, again, took this idea about what if there was total surveillance all the time and then dropped a bunch of characters from our world into that space and they just act sort of like they would now. Like Sal drunk dials his wife a bunch of times and she's exasperated and aggravated because she's trying to move on with her she's life. She's like, leave me alone. Yeah. Stop calling me. And there's video chat. Like there's there's video chat there. But does the movie ever ever raise any questions or implications about what that would mean in that kind of world? Like could you just imagine? It's It's bad enough in 2018 that you know stalkers can gain access to their victims facebook information and their twitter information their instagram information if it's not made private but in a world where there's total surveillance all the time and a police officer of all people has access to this information and you know there's this disturbed police officer who who, who's who's recovering from from alcoholism and is dealing with the death of his son the movie never really says what like that dangerous set of circumstances would lead to and I think that for me is is the one of the things that I that I point to when I say I wish the movie had done more. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, uh, when we first started talking about the movie, I like when I was sitting down thinking about what I wanted to say about it. I I think that it is a really cool idea. I think it's really really neat. I think the idea of this persistent augmented reality world that everybody has access to, that's always around, that that kind of is this underlying technological skin over the real world. I think that's fascinating. And I think that's something we're starting to see today with iOS, ARKit apps, and uh, ARCore with Google's uh, platform. But I mean, I just wanted to see it executed better. I think there's cool ideas in there that just weren't pulled out. And I think you're right. 
maybe the mistake was just dropping these very seemingly normal characters into this world. Uh, perhaps there is a better way to to handle that and show off what's interesting about the world that's present in Anon. I would say, though, moving a little bit forward and touching on the character of Amanda Seyfried, again, her nameless woman, in the movie, uh, she is... I actually don't remember what, what what term the movie uses for them. I'm just going to call them fixers. What she, I think that's what they called it, was a fixer. Oh, yeah. oh is yeah. that really what they I'm called I'm pretty it? sure okay. it was fixer. So, then, so her, her whole thing is that, yes, she's analog, but also she is able to replace memories in people's feeds with fake memories that are grounded in reality. So, like, for example, if you, uh, if you cheat on your spouse or your partner and you don't want your spouse or partner to have access to that information, then you would go to a person like Amanda Seyfried to go to a fixer and they would rewrite those memories, um, tap into the ether, tap into your feed so that anyone who looks at your memories wouldn't have, wouldn't be able to know that you, you know, you cheated on your spouse. And that stuff was cool. I thought, I thought it was really fascinating the way that they did that. Um, I just kept trying to imagine like what program she was using to create these like fake augmented reality things. So I was like picturing her like in Adobe Photoshop live inside her head, moving stuff around or something. Cause it, cause it didn't really touch on that. Right. Like she, she was hacking stuff stuff in real time like changing what uh soul was able to see like when he was walking down the subway steps which amusingly was a subway station in toronto too i think it was lower base station that would that would be my guess um once again toronto standing <laughs> in for new york city so he she was moving the steps in real time but they didn't really say how she was doing it i guess we're supposed to assume that she was doing all this hacking in her head but i mean it would have been would have been neat to see like how that process actually worked i, I know it's a movie so they can't really explain it but more detail explaining why she's able to do this and other people can't. And again, it's not like we're looking for a, a maddening exposition dump. Just a just a throwaway line, just a, you know, something really quick offhand, being like, "Oh, she just she did this, this, and this." Like, and and that that would have been great. Now, on the subject of sight, something that Anon does very well, um, and I'm going to I'm going to praise the movie. I think for the first time in this uh, in this in this uh, conversation, I'm going to say that I really like the way that Anon portrays. Um, first-person view uh, through, like, the ether, through the, through the lens of the augmented reality implants versus um, the, the third-person view. So what the movie does when we're, like, we as the audience are watching the characters interact, it's in regular widescreen, third-person, sort of like, you know, when you're playing a video game in third-person mode or a third-person uh, perspective video game. But then when we as the audience are seeing through the eyes of the character, because, of course, in Anon, it's very important to see what the, to, to see literally what the, uh, the characters see, the movie switches to a different aspect ratio it fills the screen and also it's sort of like a first person shooter and in fact a lot of characters use guns and when we see the gun from their perspective it really is like you're playing you know call of duty or battlefield or something because you see the gun like in the middle of the screen and it's always it's always centered how did you how did you patrick feel about the switching i thought it was really cool and that was something i noticed towards the end so i, th- I looked it up and i think it's switching from 16 by 9 widescreen to 4 by 8 when when it's those first person sections i mean it was a little weird because i there's times where I thought they were forcing it a little too much to look like a first-person shooter, and that became uncomfortable. But I mean, the sections where there wasn't uh, gunplay or, or weapons, I thought it was um, it was a good way to kind of um, show a stark difference between those two different feeds when it's just the film, or when it's actually uh, you're watching someone's feed inside of their head through their. Uh, through their ether connection, I guess you would call it. <laughs> I mean, through the ethernet. Uh, oh, there uh, you go, through the ethernet. Um, but I, I mean, I thought it was cool. It was a good way to kind of show those differences, and it, and it was subtle because I didn't notice it until the end of the movie, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, that keeps changing. I should pay attention to that more. But 
I think they did a good job with that. So again, it, it sort of comes down to the fact that you and I kind of feel that it's visually stimulating and the ideas are great, but the execution doesn't always land the whole time. I want to I wanna ask a question and how you feel about the idea of Anon having a sequel. Because the movie kind of ends with this resolution, us discovering, and I guess, yeah, spoilers, us discovering that Amanda Seyfried actually wasn't responsible for these murders. She didn't necessarily even have a hand in them. She just happened to be helping the individuals who, who happened to get murdered rewrite their feeds and rewrite their memories. She just happens to be there. And the movie kind of ends with her dropping a really important line for, for the conversation of privacy that we're going to have a little bit uh, a little bit later on. She says something along the lines of, it's not that I have anything to hide, it's that I don't have anything I want you to see, which again is a fantastic response to that question of, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, or rather to the statement, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. But do you think Anon, as a movie, is kind of trying to set itself up for maybe a sequel or like a, a series or maybe a TV series that Netflix will pick up? Or is that just me being a little too uh, I, I paranoid? Kinda, I kind of got that impression a little bit. I mean... At the very end of the movie, what I thought was interesting is the way she hides um, her identity is essential is essentially peer-to-peer file sharing, right? She hides a little bit of her feed in everybody, right? I thought that was a clever way of explaining it. And I, I know we talked about how we wanted to know a little bit more about this world. I thought that was an example of where the movie does that well. They kind of give you an answer to one of the questions that you, many people watching it probably had in their mind. And I, and I think that does kind of set it up for a sequel, um, given the reception, I don't know if that's that's going to happen. But I mean, this is Netflix. It, it's this interesting era of TV and movies where literally anyone seems to be able to get a Netflix deal. So who knows? Maybe maybe it did well with uh, Netflix's audience and, and they'll renew it for uh, another movie, something like that. So it, it's definitely possible. Well, I brought up the subject of privacy a little bit ago. So let's uh, let's move on to our next segment that I like to call staying civil for our civil liberties. Now, Patrick, in our first episode, which was on Ready Player One, you explained the distinction between virtual reality and augmented reality, which sort of feature into Anon. Uh, and you gave us an idea of where we're at with those particular technologies. You kind of said that you know virtual reality is when the real world is gone, while augmented reality is a mix of the real world and the virtual world. And the uh, technology used in Anon is very much AR. So understandably, we're nowhere near the level of AR technology that's exhibited in Anon. And we even said that a few weeks ago with Ready Player One. Also, for the most part, we're nowhere near the level of surveillance that's exhibited in the movie. Um, earlier in this conversation, I said, of course, that you know social media gathers a lot of information about us and the government has a lot of information about us. But if, for example, uh, Facebook wants to reconstruct you know, last night for me, it's not going to be able to really do that without using the information that I've given it. And if I haven't given that information to Facebook, then that information is not really present there. Now, that being said, I did speak with Brenda McPhail, who, as I said earlier, is director of the Privacy, Technology, and Surveillance Project at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, the CCLA. And she did shed some insight into where we're at now in terms of privacy. So according to Brenda, CCLA looks at privacy first and foremost as a human right. And it's a right that's important both as an individual good and something that we don't think about often enough, but we need to start talking about a lot more as a public good. So we think about it as an individual good in terms of, you know, people need a space to develop and grow as an autonomous individual. They need to be free of scrutiny by others, including the state. And they need a zone of privacy that is both physical, so related to our bodies and how we act, and in, in our homes, 
and also informational. So it's about the right to choose who we're going to share information with and how we're going to share it and when we're going to share it, and particularly if we want to share it. And then the, the public side, at CCLA, we see privacy as a benefit to society. It's really one of the precursors that's needed as a gateway to a lot of other rights and fundamentally to sustain freedom and democracy. Because when you think about it, we don't need privacy just for ourselves in isolation. We need it for social interactions. We don't just need to have secrets, and people think about privacy in relation to secrets. Sometimes we need to be able to share intimate moments or personal information with other people. And we don't just need to try on new ideas or develop controversial opinions or explore new ways of thinking by ourselves all alone in isolation. We also need to be able to do it together as friends or as colleagues or even as strangers because we're all members of a democratic society. She also explained that there are laws in place that protect Canadians and their privacy. It depends who's doing the surveillance, what laws apply. Certainly in Canada, we have both private and public sector privacy laws. Private sector would be for corporations. Public sector, of course, is for government. And those laws lay out how data can be collected and how it can be used. And they deal primarily with personally identifiable information, which is an issue because the kind of surveillance increasingly that happens, as we were just referring to when we talked about big data, happens by taking group data and using it to categorize us and then treating us as a member of a group. So, you know, you're not you, you're a person like us, or even worse, a person like them. Then there are provisions in the criminal code that lay out how police can conduct surveillance. Um, And when those rules get violated, of course, that gets dealt with in a court. And we've got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, which applies to all people in Canada, whether they're Canadians or not. So whether you're a Canadian citizen or somebody who's just in Canada, you're protected by the Charter. And there's different parts of the Charter that protect people. So Section 7, which protects our right to life, liberty, and security of the person, addresses privacy interests because you have privacy rights to your person, to your body. Section 8 is the big one. It protects us from unreasonable search and seizure. So that's the kind of privacy protection connected with the legal idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy that gets hashed out in the courts. So those those are probably the main ways, the main kinds of laws that right now protect Canadians' privacies. Patrick, I want to ask you, what do you think right now is the greatest privacy concern for Canadians? I mean, I think Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica data breach is pretty top of mind for a lot of Canadians. I think the big thing with privacy, and not just in Canada, I think in general, there's a lack of education about it. I think people don't realize that when they get a free app or a free program or they're taking something for free, in most cases that app isn't actually free, right? There, there's some kind of transaction in there. They're giving up a level of their digital privacy. Um, and I know that apps often have permissions that show up, right? Like I need access to your phone book. I need access to your camera. I need access to your mic. No one looks at that. They just click go. And I know this because I do that myself all the time, right? Um, and I think I'm... You don't read the terms of service. I rarely ever do, right? And I wouldn't describe myself as a a privacy fanatic, but I think I'm somewhat diligent about it. Like I use one password. I have various things set up with two-factor authentication. I think the Facebook Cambridge Analytica stuff is definitely top of mind. Um, But I think the the broader issue uh, is perhaps that these companies have too much freedom, but also just a lack of education surrounding digital privacy. Well, it is funny that you bring up Facebook and Cambridge Analytica because Brenda actually specified that. Charter rights are to protect us from the state. 
And increasingly, a lot of our privacy infringements don't necessarily come from the state. They come from corporations. And then there's a real blurring of the line between public and private. So the state buys data from the private sector. Information that's gathered online by things like social media companies then is considered public and is used by the state. So there's a real blurring of those lines. And that sort of speaks to where we need to go when it comes to privacy, because we need to start thinking about it a lot more holistically. We also need to... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Start thinking of it as a barrier, whether that's to law enforcement or to innovation and business. We really have to, if we think about privacy in a rights framework, it shouldn't be something that we ask people to trade away, whether it's for a benefit to themselves, whether it's for a benefit to the state. It really needs to be something that we assume everybody deserves just by virtue of being human. You know, on a less abstract law, that means we need to strengthen privacy laws and update them to deal with the kinds of emerging privacy threats that are raised by big data, by algorithmic analysis and decision-making, and by this massive, huge, amazing proliferation of information about us, some of which we create and toss out ourselves online, and a lot of which is created by others about us by taking little bits and pieces of things that we've shared and putting them into a big pile that supposedly reveals some deeper truths about us. I think for me, a, a huge area of concern is precisely around that use of public information, whether it's by the state or by companies. Privacy experts talk about a thing called purposification, and that basically just means if I share information with you for one purpose, it doesn't mean that you get to use it for anything else you want. And a lot of business models are being built on the idea that a little clause in a click-through contract is enough to completely get rid of that principle. That's something we need to start fighting back on. I think the whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal has raised some public awareness of that issue. I'm hoping that that awareness leads to some actual concrete change because when it comes to whether it's corporate or state use of public information, we really desperately need some guidelines. I also got to ask Brenda a question I've always wanted to ask a privacy expert, and it's a question that I, I alluded to a little bit earlier in, in our previous segment. Of course, that question is, if you have nothing to hide, what do you have to fear? As I know you know from the way you asked the question, that's the question that anybody who ever talks about privacy really, really, really hates. It's also the question that gets asked every time. And since we're sort of talking about privacy today in the context of a movie, it made me really happy to see that there's a fantastic line in the trailer to Anon uh, where the female character says, it's not that I have something to hide. I have nothing I want you to see. Really fundamentally, as humans, we should have the choice to say, I have nothing I want you to see. And it goes back to the definition of privacy at the beginning as a space to develop as an autonomous human who can then contribute to a free and democratic society. The other thing about the I have nothing to hide is that it makes it all about you or all about me. And it can't always be all about the individual because not everyone is equally affected by surveillance. People who are poor are watched more than people who are rich. 
people who are racialized are watched more than people who are white in our society. And it's also not just about the reality of the surveillance, about being disproportionately watched. It's about the effect it has on your life. It's about the decisions that get made about us based on what someone sees or what they think they see. Because remember, particularly online, what they're looking at is data trails, which are representations of things that you've done, not necessarily things that speak purely to the core of who you are. There's also another line in the movie, and it's said by one of the cops, and it's, we can't control what we can't see. Personally, I think we need to be very, very critical of that urge to control society via surveillance. Because that kind of control at a really fundamental level is antithetical to freedom. It goes back again to that public good argument that we started with, where we need privacy collectively to have a you know functional democracy. So, Patrick, what do you think? Where do you stand on this issue? Of course, if we're all good people, and I think most of us are good people, why should we be worried about government or various corporations having access to our, our private information? Because, of course, you know, there's nothing to hide there. I think it's a difficult question because, I mean, this, this movie makes the argument that it will make us safer. And obviously that's not the case, right? Um, I think the big problem is, is corporations abusing the amount of access to data that they have. I think the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data breach is a perfect example of this. I think there's various governments in the world that have access to people's private digital data, and you can see what, what they're able to do with that in terms of uh, abusing it. I don't think that it would really solve anything. And I think that that's kind of what Anon is trying to prove, right, is that even if you have nothing to hide, it doesn't really make anybody safer. And, th and that's the underlying, I guess, message and theme behind the movie. And of course, I also asked Brenda McVale the sort of age-old question about increasing surveillance and people following the law. So, Patrick, I want to I put this question to you before we hear what, uh, what McPhail had to say. Do you think that increasing surveillance, whether that's through the forms of, of security cameras or government having access to your information that you post publicly, do you think that that leads to more people following the law? I think there's always ways for people to circumvent surveillance. You saw it in the movie with Saul kind of looking at different objects so that the FBI... Uh, that, that's what he was part of, right? The FBI? No, I think he was just part of a regular detective. Just a regular detective. police force, yes. The NYPD. Okay, so the police force wasn't able to see what he was looking at. Um, and I mean, people are always going to find ways to, to circumvent surveillance. Uh, there's lots of countries in Europe that have like CCTV systems set up all over the place. Um, I think they've probably seen a little bit of a drop in crime, but then people find the dead spots, right? I don't think there's any way to always surveil people and it may prevent crime a little bit but i don't think that it has uh, that significant of an effect well again it's interesting that you bring that up because that's sort of similar to what brendan mcphail had to say there's two streams of an answer to that question one to go with doesn't surveillance encourage people to follow the law honestly the jury is out on that one it's not entirely clear that it does we know that it changes behavior but it may not change the behavior in ways that we expect. So in the United Kingdom, for example, where they've got literally millions of surveillance cameras all over the place, state surveillance cameras, there've been a ton of research studies and the results are really mixed. But sort of where they generally land is that cameras can have a deterrent effect sometimes in some places for a certain period of time. They don't help in other kinds of places. It changes over time. And really what it's good for is catching people after they've broken the law rather than making them follow it. So certainly catching, catching bad guys is a worthy aim. But in terms of putting up cameras to stop people from doing something bad in the first place, it hasn't really been shown to be effective. 
And then there's, you know, the flip of that is a bunch of research, including some by a really great Canadian scholar called Jonathan Penny, that look at, you know, online behavior, how people search for things. Jonathan looked at Wikipedia searches after the Snowden links and found that people were, there was a real drop-off of people looking for things that they thought might be related to terrorism, which we can, you know, extrapolate means that they're afraid that those kind of searches would call attention to them. And then another set of scholars sort of extended that work, and they found that people were not just less likely to look up words like bomb or terrorist or Hamas or ISIS, they were less likely to look up words that related to things that they individually felt were you know, personal or intimate. So the big effect there was that people stopped doing searches around health information. And that can, you know, it's not a great great thing to have a society where people who are sick are afraid to look up information about their conditions online because they're afraid they're being watched. So, you know, it really is not clear that increasing surveillance will encourage people to follow the law. And it's conversely fairly clear that increasing surveillance has other negative effects. In terms of is it ever okay when it's to infringe privacy? Well, of course. I mean, rights often conflict. It's like the old saying, you know, where does the right of the right of my fist ends, where the right of your nose begins? Privacy, like all rights, conflicts with others. And we should know too that sometimes it's used negatively. It's used as a shield. So I've had people tell me about medical situations where patients' families are sometimes denied information about what went wrong with the treatment of a loved one on the grounds either that it violates the patient privacy or the doctor's or the hospital's privacy. So there's an example where you might want to argue about the protection of privacy and say that there would be a greater benefit in that case in disclosure and accountability and transparency. In Canada, under our charter, we have a process to balance competing rights. And we've got laws that identify when sometimes we think it's okay to infringe on privacy. Usually that's, you know, in really dire circumstances, like when someone's life is at stake or when the physical safety of someone, especially if it's a child, is at risk. And in all those kinds of situations, the important thing is that there are rules and that there's limits and that there's accountability after the fact to make sure that those rules and limits were respected. But, you know, at the same time, I think that we're experiencing a lot of slippage in terms of what we're being encouraged to think is okay about when it might be okay to infringe privacy. And I think that's linked to the idea that it, we're slipping a little bit on whether or not it's a right. Companies want us to think, for example, it's okay for them to reserve the right to use our information for future uses that they haven't even decided on yet. That's why you'd seen a privacy policy if you've ever read one of them, and most of us haven't. Things like, we might use our, your data for research or we will use your data to enhance our capacity for innovation. And those things usually mean we don't know why we want it yet, but we figure that if we have it at some point, we might figure that out. So we're going to, we're going to take it. And that's the kind of infringement that really isn't okay in my mind. So Patrick, it's funny you bring up the idea of the dead spots because, of course, in Anon, we do see a moment where there's a drug dealer. And in the movie, uh, in, uh, rather in the movie's universe, drug dealers, they wear blindfolds. So they don't really know. Yeah, I remember that now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like Sal's trying to, he buys cocaine for the sting operation to, to, to capture. Yes. Right. We see it from the drug dealer's perspective later on. We see that the drug dealer is blindfolded and I'm, I'm pretty sure he can't hear anything. So what happens is Sal approaches uh, this individual and the drug dealer hands over like a bag of cocaine. And that's it, because of course all the all the transactions are done digitally. Because not only uh, not only is this a world where like HTC and Steam are working with the government to surveil all of us, Google and 
Apple also have Google Pay and, and like Apple Pay and everything. It's Apple Pay 6 that they have. Oh. <laughs> it's the sixth version of Apple Pay. I, I, I'm sorry. I ha- what does, like, is, are we on Apple Pay 5 right now? Like, what's going on with no, Apple they, Pay? No, they just started numbering them in the future. That's what I decided. Oh, okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So it's... <laughs> so- <laughs> It's the new AR uh, AR Kit Seven powered Apple Pay Six. Oh my goodness! That's so. Is it? Are we using the new iPhone? or Are we on like the iPhone Twenty Four? Uh, no, they're still numbering them. Apple likes numbers. They haven't they haven't switched to the the iPad model. Um, I think at that point they might uh, Twenty Four. I think that's a little bit exaggerated. Let's say the iPhone Twenty. I think it's the iPhone 20. Wow. The iPhone so the 20th where, anniversary device just came out. So, you know, the 20th anniversary uh, would be 10 years down the line. So we're, we're facing this anon privacy disaster 20 years, sorry, 10 years from now in 2028. There you go. Y- you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to be living in a imagine dystopian. That, imagine that actually happened. There's no way like the actual AR technology as it stands right now is nowhere close to that. Right. And it's not embedded into people's heads. It's on their phones or it's on glasses or it's on gigantic headset so like all joking aside there's there's no way that we're gonna see anything like that in 10 years no 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 don't don't, don't say that you don't want to say there's no way i think no we, way I th- oh we got we got to hedge our bets a little bit because i mean again 20 like the early 2000s i was thinking to myself there's no way that we're so close to having video chat in the palm of your hands there's no way that the internet's gonna be fast i guess enough. yeah sure fair it's 5g 5g is gonna bring on the anonymous future <laughs> So you heard that here first, folks. 5G technology is going to bring us to the maybe, world of Anon. Maybe that's like what 5G needs. Because that's what they're trying to figure out with 5G, right? Is like, why does 5G need to exist? What technology needs this speed? There you go. It's it's AR built into your head. So that actually, oddly enough, does sort of segue into our final segment that I like to call Designing a World with Privacy in Mind. Listen on for my interview with Dr. Anne Kavukian. In the interest of full disclosure, Dr. Kavukian did not like Anon. Anne Kavukian, I'm the head of the Privacy by Design Center of Excellence at Ryerson University. So Dr. Kavukian, I was wondering if we could start off by talking a little bit about why you didn't like Anon. It was the premise of uh, the totalitarian government, that the premise that you can, by getting rid of privacy, essentially getting rid of freedom, people's freedom, because privacy forms the foundation of our freedom, that that will enable you to combat crime and is basically get rid of crime. It's First of all, it's utter nonsense, but it's predicated on the zero-sum view of the world. That's the prevailing model, that it's privacy versus security, privacy versus public safety. It's either or win-lose, you can have one versus the other. That's utter nonsense, and it's a dated model that is the easy way out for the lazy man. And I say man, I, I should say person, but forgive me. So that's what I found so offensive about it. Getting that view and having that presented to the world as if this is doable and appealing we know that's not the case. Look to the, the Third Reich, the Stasi police and in Germany. It's, first of all, today, it's no accident that Germany is the leading privacy and data protection country in the world. It's no accident they had to endure the abuses of the Third Reich when the, the Stasi police, you know, they, I always say their motto could have been, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. It's premised on the fact that if you're a law-abiding citizen, the state should have a right to access all your information, and what's the problem, right? No, wrong. The problem is that's not what freedom is about. 
Freedom is the exact opposite of that. You go about your business, you, the individual, decide how your information will be used and to whom it should be disclosed. A long way of saying, I hate the zero-sum either-or model advanced in this horrible show. And I, I shouldn't say horrible show. I mean, I just watched it for five, ten minutes. I'm sure it has some redeeming features. But what it's premised on, it is, it is that essentially that, that big brother view of the world, that it will be much better if higher power can look at everything and determine how the outcomes should be. In your opinion, what makes privacy so important? Privacy is essential to our freedom, and that's what I want people to understand. It's a very important fundamental human right, but also at a societal level, it has such enormous value. You cannot have freedom without privacy. We know this historically. If you look at places all around the world, when surveillance takes place and governments take over, the first thing, the first thread to unravel is privacy, and then your freedom goes out the door. As individuals, as human beings, we have to have freedom to be able to come up with the brilliant ideas and the blue sky thinking. You know, look at Steve Jobs. Uh, uh, what a loss that was. He was of course, brilliant at developing Apple, etc. But he believed in privacy so, so strongly. Um, an anecdote, which I love telling, uh, he used to buy the same white Mercedes every six months, a new one every six months. He would take his old one in and buy a new one. Why? Because at that time in the state of California, you had six months when you bought a new car, you had up to six months before you had to get a license plate. He didn't want a license plate on his car. He didn't want to be tracked in any way. So that's what he did. He used to trade in his old one, buy a new one, and he'd never had license plates on his cars. Um, after he died, uh, California actually changed that regulation. <laughs> so I just, I just want to draw people's attention to the importance of privacy and the brilliant blue sky thinking and innovation and creativity and prosperity that privacy brings when you don't have that, all of that kind of innovation and creativity goes out the door. So if you value freedom, if you value innovation, you value privacy. Take steps to protect it. In your opinion, what's the number one privacy concern in Canada? It's similar to other countries as well, but it's the growth of surveillance, invisible surveillance on the part of our intelligence agencies. So they're much better known in the U.S., the NSA, the CIA as a result of Edward Snowden's revelations. But I assure you, we are as bad as the U.S. and everywhere else. You know, there's the five eyes, the five countries, Canada, United States, Europe, Australia, and uh, New Zealand. All of these countries have intelligence agencies. We have CSIS and the CSE, Communication Security Establishment. They are in the thick of it in terms of getting access to data that we don't know about without a warrant. See, this is my problem. If you get a warrant, be my guest, you're a law enforcement agency and intelligence service, because when you get a warrant, you've gone to an independent third party, a judge, and made the case that you've got probable cause that you need to investigate. They review it to your evidence, and if they agree with you, they give you the warrant. And that's why I say, be my guest. If you can convince a judge you've got probable cause, you need to investigate here because a crime may have been committed, then by all means, do it. What I hate is the invisible surveillance that takes place regularly 
without the public's knowledge or any oversight on the part of these agencies just to go in and get information. Let's get into it. What is privacy by design? It's really quite simple. I developed privacy by design long time ago, late 90s, early 2000s. I was a privacy commissioner for a long time, three terms. But unlike most privacy commissioners, I wasn't a lawyer. I'm a psychologist. I studied psychology and the law as well. Court took many courses, law, law courses when I was in grad school. But I'm not a lawyer. So the approach I brought to privacy was different than the traditional legal approach, which was based on regulatory compliance after the fact. You have a regulation in place, there's a data breach or something happens, you investigate and you offer a remedy after the fact. All that is very valuable. But what I wanted to do, I wanted a proactive system of preventing privacy harms from arising. I wanted a model of prevention, much like a medical model of prevention, where you identify the risks and embed privacy protective measures to prevent those risks, to prevent the privacy harms from arising. So that was the essential difference, and I think my background contributed contributed to that. I developed the seven foundational principles of privacy by design, uh, literally at my kitchen table over several nights. And there are seven foundational principles, and they hinge on being proactive, preventing the harm, embedding privacy into the design of your operations to see. You see, I wanted privacy protective measures to be seamlessly embedded in your policy, baked into your code, baked into your data architecture, so that they could be constantly present, not only engaged after a data breach or privacy infraction happened. So that was a different approach that I brought to it. And as I said, the two essentials of privacy by design are proactive to prevent the harm embedded in design, prevent the harm from arising, and positive sum, not zero sum. That's critical. It can't be an either or win-lose proposition of privacy versus another interest because it's never privacy that wins, nor should it be. But I sure as hell don't want privacy to lose because it's presented in this false dichotomy of either or which is basically an unnecessary trade-off. You can have both, and that's been my mantra. So how can we get industry to support the principles of privacy by design? You change the world. You change the way we think about this. In 2012, you can find it on my website, um, we issued, when I was commissioner, we issued a paper, which was a compilation, actually, of 22 papers we had written with all the major tech companies on privacy by design. Think of any major tech company, Microsoft, Intel, HPE, IBM, of course, uh, Oracle. I'm leaving out a few, but, um, and we partnered with them on leading areas like video surveillance, RFIDs, sensors, uh, a whole 11 different areas. We wrote papers with these leading tech companies to show how you could embed privacy into these areas and still deliver the utility of whatever that service was offering with the sensor. One example of sensors that we did with Intel, um, with the aging demographics of our population, there are a lot of older people who want to live, who are, who live alone and want to still stay in their home, but they might need help from time to time. So Intel developed these sensors. For example, one was you put a sensor on, on someone's bed, an elderly person, person's bed who's living alone at home so that it would detect when a person gets up to go to the restroom, if they're not back within a predetermined period of time, the sensor goes off indicating, you know, the person might have fallen, might need some help or something. 
and help would come. But they did it in such a beautiful way. It was totally privacy protective, of course, with the positive consent of the individual. But they would know who would be alerted. The sensors would send off wireless signals, which were encrypted, so they couldn't be intercepted by other parties. And the individual who would get the message would alert the emergency agency who would go to the house. All of this was fully described and consented to, and no one else could access this information. It was all encrypted. So that's just one example. You can do this. You can do multiple applications of this. You just, you know, you got to get smart and creative. When companies ask for our personal information, should they ask for all of it all at once, or should they go with an active consent type of model where they only ask for the information that they think they need? It has to be asked at different times. You can't do a you know, uh, we're going to collect everything and we may or may not use it, but down the road, they're just consent to everything. No. And that also flies in the face of, I don't know if you're aware of it, there's a new law coming into effect in two weeks in the European Union called the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. As you know, a privacy by design is included in the GDPR for the first time ever in a major law, which is a huge deal. And what the GDPR is going to be doing with privacy by design, it will be raising the bar dramatically on privacy all around the world, because everyone wants to be compliant with the GDPR and engage in trade with the EU. So that model is predicated on not, you know, we're going to collect everything and we may use it somewhere down the road. No, we're going back to basics. You collect the information you need for whatever purpose you're contemplating. Think it through. Ask for what you need. If you need multiple pieces of information, fine. Think it through. That's called the primary purpose of the data collection. Then you can only use the information for that purpose. Now, down the road, if there's a secondary use you hadn't anticipated, you go back to the data subject and obtain their consent. That's the model that is going to be instantiated in two weeks, and it will be everywhere. And that's the model we have to have. Otherwise, you're going to have massive surveillance continue to grow. Does increasing surveillance mean that more people follow the law more often? It it probably does at some level encourage um, some people to follow the law. But when you talk about law-abiding citizens, which the majority of the population is, they're going to be following the law anyway. So then you've got the bad guys. We're going to find ways around surveillance. Nothing is foolproof, as you know. So the bad guys will figure out some ways to get around it in any event. But what that underscores, that comment, was that the, the privacy issue hinges on freedom and the ability to just think amazing thoughts and blue sky thinking and wild ideas. That's what you're going to be losing when you impose this kind of surveillance in an effort to get people to follow the law. Following the law is one aspect of life, but there are so many others that you are going to be losing in terms of creativity and innovation and prosperity. It shrinks. As a psychologist, I'm speaking now. When you think you're constantly being watched, it shrinks your cognitive bandwidth, meaning you go inward. You don't do this massive blue sky thinking. You go inward and you control yourself more and more. We know societies that have had that kind of surveillance. Um, they're afraid to talk to each other. You know, they, they talk in whispers when they go outside. They're constantly looking over their shoulder. This is not going to lead to any new creations or innovation or any kind of prosperity. It will be taking us backwards. So that's why I'm so concerned about it. Thank you for your time, Dr. Kavukian. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. 
Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and pretty much every podcasting app out there. Patrick, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on mobilesyrup.com, but you can also find me on Twitter at, at Patrick underscore O'Rourke. Where all of his private information is completely publicly accessible. All the time. I have nothing to hide. I'm a good person. He has nothing to fear, folks. Nothing to fear. You can find me on Twitter, at SamirChaber94, where I actually don't tweet out that much. I mostly just do retweets. You can find Mobile Syrup at Mobile Syrup on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 